This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, making the world healthier and greener one day at a time. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. We are always afraid to feel anxious since we believe it is a crippling response to life circumstances. But what if I told you we can develop strategies so your anxiety can work for you? Joining me today is David Rosmarin, PhD and author of Thriving with Anxiety. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, after reading your lovely book, I realized that sometimes we create our own anxiety and then we have trouble understanding its source. The solution, it seems, are quite simple. So let's talk about that. Sure thing. In chapter one, you discuss the blessing of anxiety, which I thought was a really interesting way to describe anxiety. So it actually can be a blessing. Indeed. Let's get it straight from the start that anxiety shares the same circuitry in your brain as fear. Fear is what protects you. That's the adrenal response. Adrenaline shoots through your bloodstream when you need it in order to fight or flight away from whatever's trying to harm you. And usually over the course of life, there's a couple times, maybe once or twice, hopefully not more than that, that that fear circuitry saves your life. Anxiety is the exact same. It's just a misfire. It's when we don't need all that adrenaline pumping, but the actual experience of anxiety means that your body is healthy and can respond if you need to in an emergency. And so when we have that anxious response as opposed to calling it an adrenal response when we have that anxious response is it important for us to become aware of what is causing it or do we what is that what the crippling aspect of anxiety is we just don't know where it's coming from i think that's exactly the question to ask what happens is every once in a while you are going to get freaked out that is what life just throws us we get curveballs sometimes and once in a while, your adrenal response, your anxiety response, your fear response, whatever it is, is going to go off. The question is, what happens next? Do we interpret that experience as I'm broken, something's wrong with me, I'm dying, the world is imploding? Do we catastrophize? Do we blame ourselves? Or do we automatically say, oh, there she blows again, like there goes my anxiety response, not a big deal. If we take the latter road, things calm down as quickly as they will. You take the former road, which is usually what people do today, and you end up with an anxiety epidemic, which is what everyone's experiencing. And I, I do believe that it's like an anxiety epidemic because every single person that I speak to, even in my own practice, we all are suffering somehow from an anxious response to daily life. So I think my big question is, how did our daily lives become so stressful? Is there something that we, I mean, I know that our ancestors had stress, my own parents had stress. How is it that our stressors seem so much more, you know, detrimental to our life and our well-being? The irony, it's a great question. The irony is that the stressors that we have are actually substantially less. If you look at the 20th century, what like my parents went through, what their parents went through, you know, my great grandparents, I mean, like the Great Depression, uh, you know, the, the like the Spanish flu epidemic compared to what we went through. COVID was no picnic. Don't get right. me wrong. But it was it was a different game back then. And two world wars. I mean, you know, throughout all of history, 
we have faced such incredible uncertainty, we actually have less stress today than ever. And I think what we're seeing is a generation that expects our emotions to be even keeled and happy all the time. Well, guess what, folks? That's not what we're built for. I'm so happy you said that. Anxiety is part of life. Anxiety is part of life. We've got to thrive with it. And I love that you said that. I'm actually really happy that you said that because I'm trying to teach my teenagers that, you know, like you don't always get what you want. Uh, you, you know, hopefully you get what you need. And then we learn to, you know, interact within that realm. So things you want, you work for things you, you know, you need, you're, you'll hopefully will be provided or you'll, you'll provide for yourselves. But my perspective is that you're right. We are, our stressors are less, but we're putting more stress on ourselves. Correct. It's the expectation to feel good, that everything should happen, lickety split right away. That, that's just not life. And even in this age of incredible technology and incredible you know, medical advances, and uh, you know, we have, look at the economy the last two years. I mean, nobody would have expected right. coming out of COVID that things could actually be somewhat regular. You know, it, it's, it's uh, not, again, I'm not, I'm not minimizing problems that we have and social problems. And of course, there's always room to grow. But at the same time, you know, let's get it in perspective that the anxiety that we experience today is normal. And our expectation and our interpretation of that, that we are damaged, that we're having a pathology as opposed to like just being human, that's at the core of the anxiety epidemic. And that's why I guess in your book, you say that, you know, we have to get take our anxiety and help us push beyond our perceived limits and develop those inner strengths is that what you're referring to yes so once we accept that anxiety is a part of life i would even say a healthy part of life now through that lens anxiety actually becomes something that you can develop or use i should say to develop yourself in a several different ways. And my book is about how to use your anxiety as opposed to trying to get rid of it, how to harness it and turn it into a tool to help you with your relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, and even to grow spiritually for those who are so inclined. Is there such a thing as good anxiety and bad anxiety? Great question. I don't think so. I think all anxiety could be good or bad depending on how we use it. Even severe anxiety, even panic attacks, which come out of the blue, they're terrifying. Those can be used, and I have seen this in my practice, to bring couples, for example, together, to enhance romantic bonds in a way where somebody can actually lean into that fear and lean on their loved one who all of a sudden is actually there for them because they're showing vulnerability as opposed to you know, sh you know showing machoism or whatever it is. You know, I've seen that happen countless times um, where... Um, People also have inner resources. And by activating those inner resources, they overcome their anxiety. And now they're more resilient to handle other life stressors. So there are so many ways that we can use even very challenging anxiety, what we would call bad anxiety, for good. And so in terms of like, um, naming anxiety, so if I'm dealing with a client or a friend or my own family members, can I say to them confidently if they're nervous, let's say my child is nervous about, you know, speaking in public, right? Can I say that, 
you know what? That's good anxiety. You need to feel, it's normal to feel a bit anxious about speaking in public. But if they're anxious about not getting invited to a party, as does happen, right? Is, the, is that bad anxiety? Or do I not even address it that way? I mean, you could, but um, I would go as far as to say all anxiety is potentially good. That fear of getting up in public makes sense. I mean, it's an, not a, unless you're used to it, unless you're used to speaking in front of people all the time, it's going to be unnerving. It's like one of the top things that make people anxious, in fact, statistically. Um, in terms of the party, that's also unnerving. I mean, to be a teen today and not get invited to a party and you see everybody's there and like they're sending shots on Instagram and you can track them with their GPS. I mean, that's tough. Like when that happens to, to kids today, that's a big deal. So that kind of makes sense to me too. I wouldn't call that bad anxiety necessarily. The question is, what do you do with that? When you get overwhelmed, how do you handle that? Does that make you closer to mom? Like, can you talk to her about it or your friends? Or um, does it help you to prepare better for next time or to learn that sometimes people are fickle and relationships suck and, you know, you just have to take the good with the bad? Or do we let it get the better of us and say, I shouldn't feel this way and judge ourselves and descend into this abyss of incredible distress. Yeah, I, I like that we talked about that because those are the types of stressors and anxiety that people are facing today. And in your book, that's what I learned. I learned that, you know, every type of anxiety that we face can make us stronger. And I like that that's what your book is trying to tell us, that anxiety can make you stronger, can make you more resilient, and it can help you overcome, you know, things in your daily life that are going to help you live a more fulfilling life. Yes. And I don't want to sugarcoat it though. It's not fun. Dealing with anxiety to me, it's like going to the gym. I, when I'm in the gym, I'm sweating like a pig. Like I'm, I'm heaving, I'm pushing myself beyond my limits because I really want to grow in my fitness. Um, it is not a pretty sight. At the end, like I need water. I need to calm down. I might need a nap. Like I'm, I'm done. I'm just done. You know, dealing with anxiety is the same way. Like if I have an anxious day, uh, that's an opportunity for me to flex my emotional muscles. I might need to chill the rest of the day. I'm, I'm not sugarcoating it. I'm not saying, yeah, be resilient and it's going to be fine. Sometimes it's not. And that's okay too, though. Sometimes we have to give ourselves permission to really struggle emotionally. And that's part and parcel of dealing with anxiety and life that human beings have always had. And I, that's a great analogy. It's it's right up my alley. Um, and you're so right. You know, like you're at the gym, you're working on your fitness, you're working on your wellness and your well-being. And it's not an easy, you know, it's an uphill battle. It's a grind. And I guess that's how we have to also face our anxiety. If we can teach people that, then we can teach them that it's just an, it's just normal reactions and we have to listen to our body. Correct. We have this expectation today that everyone's going to feel great. And I think part of the reason is because we focus on outcomes. We don't focus on the process. Everyone sees shiny Instagram pictures of people being successful without realizing that in order to get there, they were a mess. Like to try to get all that makeup on and to try to look really good or to try to get those muscles or like along the way, it was not fun. It was not pretty. And none of that usually gets filmed. Um, we just look at the outcomes as opposed to really understanding that human beings, when we go through metamorphosis and change, it's, it's hard. It's just hard. And that's fine. It's not a bad thing when we're struggling. I agree with that. And I also notice, so 
I believe that community and networking is the key to living like a very fulfilled and happy life because it gives you opportunities. You get to talk to different people. You learn about different people. Now, is that what you mean in part two of your book, enhancing your connection with others? How does that help us cope with anxiety? Yeah, I'm glad you um, uh, moved the conversation in that way. Um, we live in such isolated times. Um, uh, the top anchor on a scale of zero to five, zero to four, sorry, uh, in terms of loneliness, um, how lonely are you? The top anchor being I'm the, you know, hugely lonely is the most common response among teenagers today. The most common response. And even among college students who ob objectively speaking are not lonely because not alone because they're in dorms and they're on campus. And even though they're surrounded, even though we and our youth are surrounded by people today, we often feel very lonely and isolated. Now, our devices do a lot of good things. They help us stay connected, but they also make it possible to connect while being in your bed, as opposed to actually getting out, being real, showing who you actually are, you know, without um, having to impression, having to manage your impressions. Part of anxiety is being real with at least one friend. Like, can you really cry on their shoulder? Can you totally lose it with at least one other person in this world? Can they see you as a raw, vulnerable human who's struggling at certain points along the way? Or do you have to keep up an impression all the time? And part of being in a community is that people should see you at your worst um, and be there for you and really accept the struggles that you're having. And vice versa. And the, just to add on to that, what I do find is that the moment you allow your vulnerability to come out, then other people start to feel comfortable around you showing their vulnerability. And then you realize that you are actually not alone in your stresses, in your fears. And I, I find that that to me is what helps me get through, you know, my days, my weeks is that I want and I find that there's a craving for people to want to be more real is just hard to get there because of the anxiety. It's very hard to get there because of the anxiety, but the anxiety also occurs because we don't go there. And I know that on those days where I'm able to be more authentic, whether it's with my, my wife or whether it's with people at my work, I feel better. I feel more grounded, um, even though I'm embracing the fact that I really don't know what to do. <laughs> and I'm sharing it with someone and I'm being authentic. Um, and I am showing them that I'm overwhelmed and I don't know all the answers. Ironically, that gives me a lot of strength. Um, it's almost like I feel more accepted by them in the fact that I'm, you know, not superhuman. When we come back, the anxiety spiral and more from Dr. Rosmarin's book, Thriving with Anxiety. This is the wellness prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 1059theregion or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 1059 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Rosmarin explained how to use anxiety to push beyond our limiting beliefs. To reach that point takes work and acceptance. Can you tell us what you mean by the anxiety spiral and the disconnection spiral? Here's how it happens in real time. You start to feel a little bit anxious. 
Why? Because you're human. We all feel anxious sometimes. You wake up, it might be because it's hot outside, maybe something's on your mind, maybe you got a text message from somebody with some bad news, whatever it is, you know, you're feeling a little bit on edge. Now what do you do? So most people, unfortunately today, will start by doing two things. They will judge themselves and say, oh, I shouldn't feel anxious. I just woke up. What's wrong with me? And they will kick that around and, oh, I'm so weak. I'm so feeble. I can't do this. I'm not emotionally strong. You know, I had anxiety last week. I'm having anxiety again. Why is it? And that, take a guess what that does to your anxiety when you're judging yourself, right? It's going to, of course, it's going to kick it up. In fact, you know, biologically, your, your adrenal glands are going to fire more because you're adding more heat to the fire. So that's number one, we judge ourselves. The second thing we do is we catastrophize. Once we're feeling more amped up, our, our brain and our mind are more likely to gravitate towards the negative information. What's gonna happen next? Is it gonna be okay? I don't know. You know, And we start thinking more about the future at a greater, faster pace. Those two interact with each other. The more we start catastrophizing and worrying about the future, the more we judge ourselves. Then the more anxiety we feel, then the more we catastrophize and spiral, spiral, spiral. The next thing you know, you have an anxiety concern, a disorder, whatever you want to call it. Now, I want to reverse that cycle for everybody. First, when you have anxiety, let it just happen. Nothing's wrong with you. This is your fear circuitry in motion. It's great that you're wired for it. It could save your life. Second, process what's going on. What are you anxious about? Is there somebody who you need to talk to about this? Do you have to take inventory and figure out? Take the necessary time as opposed to avoiding your anxiety. Take 20 minutes out of your day to actually get your thoughts in order and figure out what it is that we have to do. There could be resilience for you to be able to build. There could be an opportunity on the horizon that you just haven't taken yet. Usually it's a positive thing. It's just a matter of sussing it out. And that's a longer discussion, but certainly we don't want to judge ourselves and catastrophize. That would be the anxiety spiral and how to get out of it in a couple of sentences. And then the disconnection spiral. What does that mean? The disconnection spiral is what happens interpersonally in our relationship with others. And it maps on to the anxiety spiral. In fact, I don't know about you, but my relationships are not perfect. And the closest relationships I have I'm the most vulnerable, other people are the most vulnerable, and the most real and authentic. And sometimes that doesn't showcase our, in fact, I would say always, that doesn't showcase our strongest points, it showcases our weaknesses. And that's okay, that's what relationships are about, learning to tolerate each other and remain connected, even though we're not perfect. However, when we're brush against other people's imperfections and our own, there's a tendency to do two things. One, to catastrophize to say, oh no, I can't trust this person. This relationship is doomed. I'm never going to be able to handle this. They're not going to be able to handle me. It's not going to work. Um, and it's not only romantic relationships. It's any. Um, this job isn't going to work out. I can't trust my boss. I can't trust my coworker, whatever it is, the catastrophizing. And then there's also the judgment, first of the other person, but also of ourselves. If that person is acting in a way to me that I can't stand, maybe it's because of something I did. And last week I said something, so maybe they're getting me back. And there's this tendency to judge ourselves and judge the other person. And I think what we need to do instead of the getting into this disconnection is to be real and to say, hey, like I'm firstly to understand that relationships are not perfect. Just as our emotions are not perfect, our relationships are not perfect. And that doesn't mean that we can't be really connected deeply 
wonderfully connected to people while we were working out our differences and, um, and coming to relationships with a very new lens of this does not have to be a perfect union connection in order to be a really great, um, wonderful relationship. So that's first. And the second is what do we do with that? Can we be authentic? Do we have to be fake and pretend that everything's okay or gloss over it or get angry at the person? Or do we simply find ways to express, hey, this is what I need right now. Can you be there for me? Um, and to give them the opportunity to do so or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so this gets played out more in part two of the book, but those are a couple of high level ideas about disconnection. The vulnerability, once again, we need to come clean and we need to ask for what we need. And I feel like that's a big deal for a lot of people is having the trouble expressing themselves and bottling up emotions. And then it turns into anxiety. Is that usually how it works? Like I'm, I'm thinking about my own relationships. Uh, sometimes you don't know how to ask for what you need. Uh, and sometimes the partner or the person the, on the other end of the relationship is more than willing, but you haven't asked. You've just assumed that it's not going to work out. They're not going to want to be there for you. They're not going to be there for you. All that stuff. When if you just ask, then maybe they'll become more tuned in to what you are needing in that moment. Yes. Our immediate tendency is either to not ask at all and to sort of like suck it up or to get angry and to demand it. You owe me. As opposed to, I really need you right now. I'm having a hard time. Can we spend a little bit of time this evening together? Because I miss you. That's a bold thing to say. And it's a hard thing to say, but it's needed. All people need to feel needed. And sometimes it's a great gift to our loved ones to say, hey, I really need you right now. Can you be there for me? And I feel like maybe we'd all be surprised at the outcome. We'd pleasantly surprised at the outcome of that request. I feel like it's a natural, vulnerable, it's pure. And and I feel like that's what we're missing in this, you know, in this day and age of technology and Instagram and social media where everything doesn't look, it looks like nobody needs anything. And the reality is I feel like we all need nurturing. That is so well put. We do need nurturing. Sue Johnson speaks a lot about this in her approach called Emotionally Focused Therapy. um, And that heavily influenced um, part two of my book. Um, The importance of just saying to somebody, I really am having a hard time. I could really use a hug. You know, like it sounds like such a kid thing to do, but it's not. Adults need them too. We all need them. It helps to regulate us. And when we do, it actually can help us with the anxiety response. It calms us down. The skin conductions, people relax. People are more connected. They're more centered. It's a great antidote to anxiety to have um, robust relationships that are predicated on being able to show vulnerability and be heard and felt. Now, how does interdependence and independence play? Um, Is that also in part two of the book? It is in part two of the book. Wow, you really read it. Yeah, wow. I told you I read it cover to cover. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, we live in a very independent culture, you know, perhaps to a lesser degree in, in Canada, where I'm actually from. I'm from Toronto. I don't know if you oh, knew Oh, excellent. Yeah, I bet you grew up in Thornhill. No, I didn't oh, know that. I grew up okay. at Bathurst and Eglinton. I'm oh, Forest Hill. Okay. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. And I tell you what, in Forest Hill, there was a lot of independence. I don't know, you know, Thornhill, I think was always a little bit more community focused. Um, from what I remember, you're being out there in the suburbs and people sort of knowing each other, you know, in the city, you know, where people have, you know, sort of 
like sort of larger estates. It's like, I don't need anybody. I'm just going to grow up independent and do my own thing and interact with others in a way that sort of shows my prowess. And, and I thought it was so emotionally unhealthy growing up. Frankly, it's one of the reasons I left. And, um, you know, I, um, I think today I live in a community here in the United States where people actually do rely on each other. And if people get sick, people post about it and they give you, you know, we were much more interdependent in, in, in where I am, where I live. And, and I think my kids and my family and our whole community feels the, the support and knowing that if people do struggle, somebody else is going to be there for you. And we really do need each other. And that's such a healthy, good thing that is lacking in across society today um, in many ways. Um, it's sort of an older, traditional, in some ways, way of, you know, doing things. But I think it's something that we, that we, that, um, we could still benefit from if we um, use the right tools today. And that's why I found that particular, that's why I mention it, because when I read that, I thought, wow, I feel like so many of us are actually trying to get rid of that independence and create interdependence. And I'm actually, that's, I thought about, and I thought, wow, that's what I'm doing in my daily practice and in my community every single day. I'm creating that interdependence where we can rely on each other. I'm helping people, even through my radio show, uh, you know, I'm giving people the knowledge and the know-how and you're trying to make them understand you're not alone. We are all dealing with the same things at certain times in our lives. I think that's a really important point. And I love that in part two of the book. Yeah, we all, we all need each other and there's no shame in needing your friends and having them need you. I think that's actually a sign of strength, um, not a sign of weakness in any way. And why do you think that we choose suffering? This is a, this is a big question, but I liked it because you talk about it in the book. So why do you think we choose suffering over, um, pain and over what, like when it comes to anxiety, like what is the difference? Yeah. First to just to, to delineate the difference between those two and, and how it works. Suffering is a part of life. Nobody lives pain free. Nobody lives anxiety free. No one lives depression free. No one lives without relationships that are um, couldn't use a little bit of uh, shoring up and and uh, and have their challenges. Um, especially if you're moving towards something that you really value in your life, you are going to hit roadblocks along the way. It's going to be a bumpy ride. It's just the way it is. There's turbulence. Have you ever flown in a plane? You're going to have turbulence. It's the way it is on departure, upon landing, sometimes over the seas, wherever it is that you are. This is the nature of life. The problem is when we interpret that as it shouldn't be that way. My anxiety shouldn't be here. My depression is not normal. I am dysfunctional because I am experiencing whatever it is. Pain is normal. The problem is when we interpret it in a negative way, that turns it into suffering. Pain is what we're going through. And it's it could be momentary. It could last, you know, a week, two weeks. But then the suffering is what we're dragging us through the mud on a daily basis. That's what you're referring to, right? Yes. Suffering occurs when we interpret the pain as something we shouldn't have to go through, as opposed to just accepting that this is called life. Life is not all going to be fun and games. There are difficult things, there are challenges, and um, sometimes very significant challenges. And the more, the sooner we accept it, the more we can isolate it and 
turn it into pain as opposed to something that pervades and really makes us suffer in a, in a bad way. Well, I have to tell you, I absolutely loved the book. Okay. As you can see, I have my sticky notes. It was amazing. I loved it. Uh, And I'm sure that all the listeners would benefit from it. So if, you know, it was a pleasure having you and if listeners want to get the book, learn more about you, how, and where can they do that? Great. Uh, They can check out my website, www.dhrossmarin, my last name, R-O-S-M-A-R-I-N.com. There's a page about the book and it is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Amazing. And you can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiella or my website, ClaudiaMachiella.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.